We've been talking for the last few weeks. We took one uh, week off to talk about end times because I was getting so many questions about that. But the general gist and, and theme of what we've been talking about for several months uh, has been this contemplative way, Jesus' way, the way that he said was the only way to the Father. And uh, this way of Jesus is also the contemplative way. It's a spiritual journey that we're all taking. Another way to look at it is the first and second halves of life, that when we transition from the first to the second half of life, we are now on Jesus' way. We are now following the contemplative way. And that's what we've been talking about. What it's about, what are the detriments, what are the obstacles to us being able to follow this way, what it feels like, what it doesn't feel like, because it's difficult for us. We are geared physically to the first half of life. We understand that very well. But when we move into the second half of life, everything changes and it's really difficult for us. We can't quite put it into words. It's something that has to be experienced to be believed, right? But we can at least point the direction and maybe give enough clues to what it's like to be on Jesus' way that we can actually start to relax into it, which is the whole point. Now, the effect is a second half of life faith community. We're all about looking at Jesus from a first century Hebrew point of view, which when we do that and look at Jesus through that lens, we realize he is a mystic and a contemplative. And if mystic is a scary word for you, it just means someone who can be completely present to God's presence with no intellectual filter in between, no loss in translation, just completely present. Contemplation is the practice, the program, and the tools that we use to get to a place of mystical experience, to be able to get our mind out of our way. It's really that simple, and it has nothing to do with a cult or some of the other things that it has been charged with. Jesus was such a man. He was a contemplative prayer when he went off to the wilderness, when he went off to the lonely places. That's exactly what he was doing, practicing those four S's we've been talking about, right? Silence, solitude, stillness, simplicity. He was all over that. And he was giving us those tools for us to be able to use as this only way to the Father. Not an intellectual way, not a theological way, not a doctrinal way. He said, the only thing that separates you as my followers from anybody else is the way you love one another. How present are you? How identified with the other are you? Whether it's someone you like or someone you don't like so much. So these first and second halves of life are really the key. And how do we distinguish between them? We've talked about them over and over again, that the first half of life is about an external search, an outward search for meaning and purpose in accomplishment and in the building up of platforms and the building up of our own ego and ego consciousness, whereas the second half of life turns inward for meaning and purpose. So we've talked about that before. We've been reading Richard Rohr's book for the last pretty much this whole year about the transition from the first to second half of life. But to try to put a finer point on it and see if we can get everything all in one place here, first half of life is about accomplishing, all right? first half of life is about acquiring. The first half of life is about doing. Doing, accomplishing, acquiring, building things up. Whereas the second half of life is about relinquishing. It's about receiving. And it's about being. So essentially, 
the first half, in the first half of life, our ego is the boss, if you want to look at it that way. The ego is who we understand as our self, right? It's our identity. Whereas in the second half of life, the ego becomes an employee. How's that for analogy, right? Becomes the employee, becomes a tool for this deeper self that we are coming to know as we spend more and more time stepped aside from the machinations of that egoic consciousness. First half of life, ego's a boss. Second half of life, ego's an employee. First half of life, life, accomplishing, acquiring, doing. Second half of life, relinquishing, letting go, receiving gifts that we cannot give ourselves because that's the only way we're going to get true meaning and purpose is when we receive something from God we could never give ourselves. And it's about being. First half of life is about reliance on self. We're relying on ourselves to carve out what it is we need in life. So it's about ownership. Everything has to be owned, and we need to put fences around it to protect it, right? And it's about competition. We are in competition with everyone else else to get the parts that we need. Whereas in the second half of life, it's reliance on a flow of resources that we understand are always moving through our lives, just as the Spirit's always moving through our lives. Not on what we can actually get for ourselves, but on this flow that we don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, as Jesus said, that is moving through us, resources moving through us. And instead of ownership, it's about stewardship. We don't really own this stuff, but we are stewards of it for as long as it's in our possession, as long as it's in our presence. And instead of competition, it's about cooperation. How do we cooperate with each other? How do we share resources among each other so that everybody has what they need rather than seeing us carving out what we need out of somebody else's hide. These are the differences between first and second half of life. Now, I painted first half of life as very self-serving, and please understand, first half of life is absolutely essential. We need to build our platform. We need to build our families. We need to build a strong ego. It's when it gets overbearing that we get into dysfunction and pathology. But we need a balance between the two, always the balance between the two. I want to read a story and see if this helps bring the concepts of what I'm trying to get across down to you. It's called The Fisherman and the Businessman, and it's by Paul Coelho, if, if you're familiar with him. It's just a, a wonderful writer and thinker and second half of lifer, obviously, uh, lives down in Brazil. So he writes this one. There once was a businessman who was sitting by the beach in a small Brazilian village. As he sat, he saw a Brazilian fisherman rowing a small boat toward the shore, having caught quite a few big fish. The businessman was impressed and asked the fisherman, how long does it take you to catch so many fish? The fisherman replied, oh, just a short while. The businessman was astonished. Then why don't you stay longer at sea and catch even more? This is enough to feed my whole family, the fisherman said. So the businessman then asked, so what do you do for the rest of the day? And the fisherman replied, well... I usually wake up early in the morning, go out to sea and catch a few fish, then go back and play with my kids. In the afternoon, I take a nap with my wife, and evening comes. I join my buddies in the village for a drink. We play guitar, sing, and dance throughout the night. The businessman offered a suggestion to the fisherman. I am a PhD in business management. I could help you to become a more successful person. 
So from now on, you should spend more time at sea and try to catch as many fish as possible. Then when you have saved enough money, you could buy a bigger boat and catch even more fish. And after that, the fisherman asked, soon, soon you'll be able to afford to buy more boats, set up your own company, your own production plant for canned food and a distribution network. By then you will have moved out of this village and off to Sao Paulo where you can set up headquarters to manage your other branches. How long will that take? 20, maybe 25 years? And after that? The businessman laughed heartily. After that, you can live like a king in your own house. And when the time is right, you can go public and float your shares in the stock exchange, and you will be rich. And after that, the businessman says, after that, you can finally retire. You can move to a house by the fishing village, wake up early in the morning and catch a few fish, and then return home to play with your kids. Have a nice afternoon nap with your wife, and when the evening comes, you can join your buddies for a drink, play the guitar, and dance throughout the night. The fisherman was puzzled. Isn't that what I'm doing now? <laughs> All right. What's going on here? Why doesn't the businessman see the obvious that we're all seeing, as you saw where this was going? And why is the fisherman not tempted by the businessman's offer? There's this disconnect here between the two. They're talking past each other, it seems, the whole time. Because the businessman is exemplifying a first half-of-life mentality, whereas a fisherman is clearly second half-of-life mentality. And the first half, first half-of-lifers, let's say, can't see the truth in the second half-of-life. You just can't see it. Your ego and your egoic consciousness, the filter that you've developed in order to do what you need to do in the first half-of-life, prevents you from even seeing or in any way respecting Second half of life values. It's not possible. Now, the second half includes the first half, but it doesn't identify with it any longer. And it realizes that ultimate meaning will never be found out there someplace or what can be acquired, what can be built. So the fisherman lives smack in the here and the here now. He takes only what he needs for the day, from an inexhaustible sea, right? But only what he needs for the day. Just like Jesus said in the, in the Lord's Prayer, you know, give us the bread of our need this day. Not for days future forward, not for storehouses, but he only takes what he needs from the sea, and the sea is inexhaustible. He trusts the sea to continue to provide for him day after day. Now, he works hard. He's not lazy. He works hard but only hard enough to provide for the day. He doesn't need ownership of anything. I mean, he's got a home, he's got a boat, but he's not looking for ownership. He's not looking to create a storehouse. Everything is contained in the day. See, he doesn't fear the future because he trusts what is happening right here and right now. Now, the businessman, on the other hand, lives for the future, right? Every day's work that he does is calculated to create an outcome out there someplace, out there in the future. It doesn't have value in and of itself. The only value it has is how it contributes to that outcome, to that future. And he sees the whole world as a zero sum. If he gains something, somebody else has to lose. It's win and lose. Everything is in competition. 
And so that's the way that he is focusing day by day. He has to carve out and then protect all of his acquisitions. And his work becomes obsessive because he's trying to grow and grow and grow and get to the end of this rainbow that is always out there someplace. And yes, he has to own things. He has to own everything. He has to lock it down with contracts and then build fences around it, get things and put them in saves and behind iron bars, stockpiles upon stockpiles. And truthfully, he cannot rest until at some point his fortune outweighs his fears. And when does that time really come? Do you remember someone asking Dale Carnegie, the robber baron of the late 19th century, how much is enough? Do you remember his answer? Just a little bit more. See, this is the problem with the first half of life. It's insatiable. It is a black hole. No matter how much you put in, we need just a little bit more. We just need a little bit more because we never really know, have we really taken care of all the contingencies out there? And how are we ever going to know that? It's impossible to actually know that. Now, obviously, this parable is trying to make a point, and so it's painting things very black and white. And what we're looking for is a balance. We're looking for this middle way. It's a both and and not an either or, right? It's the balance of the now and not yet that we've been talking about for weeks. That we are still working for not yet. Of course we're working for outcomes. And of course we need to plan for the future, plan for retirement, do all the things that responsible people do. But never at the expense of the now, never at the expense of being able to let this moment be enough for us and really fall into that that exhilaration of just being right here and right now. Like that Hebrew bride we've been talking about, looking for the the groom's appearance, reappearance, the shofar blowing at the end of the village that is going to signal the change, this radical change in her life and a move into her real meaning and purpose as a woman. But at the same time, realizing that this family is all she's ever known and all she has, and living that to the fullest until the very last moment when she is taken to a new place to be present to. That idea. But in order for us to even be able to get anywhere near a balance like that, we first have to begin to admire the fishermen. When we think of somebody like this fisherman and this businessman, it's looking down on this fisherman as being lazy or having no ambition, not seeing what he can accomplish in this life. And we're all wired that way, let's face it. And we've had to be wired that way. That's the way our society works. But if interiorly we can't start to admire the fisherman for the fisherman's simplicity, an ability to be present here and now, then we're never going to even want to go. We're so ensconced in the first half of life that we won't be able to see the truth in the second half of life, and it won't call to us. We will continue to resist and never really move into that place. This same theme is emphasized as Israel leaves Egypt at the time of the Exodus. And I want to read with you Deuteronomy 11, chapter 11, starting at verse 10. And it's in your uh, flyers if you want to take a look. And John, I'm sure, has already got it up. John, you're just right on it, buddy. So Deuteronomy 11, verse 10, for the land into which you are entering to possess it. So this is God speaking to the people of Israel, talking about the promised land, right? 
The land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end. So I want you to try to imagine. This is saying so much, but it may not click yet. Try to imagine living through the Exodus the people of Israel living through the Exodus. They're an enslaved people. Traditionally, for 400 years, they were enslaved in Egypt. And so everything there was regulated by their oppressors. Everything was regulated by their masters. Where to live, where to eat, when to sleep, when to work, everything regulated. And further, Egypt itself was regulated because they have the Nile River, which is the water source that was enough to fund all of their agriculture to irrigate them. When it says that uh, here, you sow your seed and water it with your foot, what he's talking about there is that there were panels to direct the channels of water to the various places that needed to be watered, and you would, there were kick panels. You would kick them with your foot and just direct the water someplace else. There was annual flooding of the Nile, which then the rich silt would come and recover the land and make it fertile again, and they could count on this year after year this rich water source that was regulated. And so what you had was humans with the ability to actually control their environment, right? Give a sense of security because we can raise these crops year after year till there's a drought or something goes wrong, but that's the exception and not the rule. So a mentality develops here. You can control the environment. You have this ability. Everything is regulated. We get up, we know exactly what we're doing day after day after day, and then suddenly, here comes Moses, and you're suddenly free, right? All this changes in just an instant, all right? Is it exhilarating? Well, yeah, but probably just for a minute, (laughs) because now you're in the wilderness, right? Now you're living off the land. Everything is changed. You're trying to hunt for birds. You're trying to find a way to eat. And then God, in his infinite provision, gives manna. But even the manna is only good for the day. If you try to store it overnight, it's moldy and horrible by the next day. You have to go out every single day and grab this stuff. And they didn't know what, in fact, manna means, what is it in Hebrew? So you don't even know what it means, but they, it, they could live off of it, but only for the day. It's a complete change. You see what a complete change in mindset this is from the regulation of their lives as an enslaved people for the irrigation that gave them a, 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 a reliable and repeatable food source. And now they're in the wilderness. Everything is changing. They can't irrigate their crops Nothing is as it was. And the fear sets in. They are longing for Egypt. They're longing for their leeks and their vegetables that they had on a regular basis because they don't have them anymore. And yet they are free. How, how difficult this is for people to be able to deal with this. And now they're going to a land that is completely different. This promised land, Canaan, as we would say in English, Canaan would be the, would be the Hebrew 
has no adequate water source whatsoever. It's a rocky land, as, they, as, as Deuteronomy said. It's hills and it's valleys. There are no rivers to run through it. The Jordan is basically a creek. You know, it's, it's nothing. And even the lakes aren't going to be able to get the water down where it needs to be. And so it's a completely different and insecure place for them. See, what's happening here is that freedom is not for the faint of heart. We all say we want to be free. We all love the idea of freedom. But the truth of the matter is that freedom comes with a sense of insecurity because now you don't have these things that regulate us. Yeah, you don't have to pay taxes anymore. That sounds great. I want to be free from that. But then when you call 911, there's nobody there, right? It's, it's, it's trading of our freedom for security that we do in civilized society all the time, and we do that in relationships. So we say we want the freedom, but it's frightening when we actually get there. It can be exhilarating at times, but it's always balanced with this insecurity. One great movie, The Shawshank Redemption, if you've seen that one, two of the old-timers who have been there for decades and most of their life are released in the course of this movie. One of them isn't out for very long, and he ends up hanging himself because he just can't deal with life on the outside. On the inside, he had his sense of meaning and purpose. He had things to do. He had some respect. Out there, he has nothing. And then when the other character is released, he has a horrible time trying to, to find his footing. And one great scene where he's working in a grocery store like Marion, only he's a bagger, right? And he's bagging, and he's always raising his hand to ask to be able to go to the restroom. Finally, his manager says, you don't have to ask me every time you need to go to the restroom, you know? And then you hear in voiceover, he's saying, he doesn't understand, you know? After 40 years on the inside, I couldn't squeeze a drop without say-so. We don't understand how much this regulation, we don't understand how much our lives as we familiarly understand them in the first half have created a worldview, have created a way of seeing and a way of living that is antithetical to the kind of freedom that Jesus is offering. He says, when you know the truth that will make you free, everything changes, but we need to be ready for that truth or suddenly free, we're going to want to go back again. So as a Israelites move into the promised land. Now they are completely dependent on rains. And you don't control the rains, do you? There were two rains that were primary. And I want to just read a couple of paragraphs so maybe you can understand what they were talking about. They're called Yore and Melkosh. Even though it's fairly late in the year in terms of the Western calendar, the rains that begin in the fall in Israel are known as the Yore or the early rains, since it is the start of the rainy season. These early rains are a reason to be glad after a hot, dry summer, and the ground can be broken up, ready to work the fields. This is the time right now for these early rains. In Israel, these soft, early rains should be falling. Toward the springtime, around the time of Passover, Israel will have the latter rains, known as the Melkosh, necessary for the ripening of the barley and the grain. The word for the former rains, yore, comes from the same root as to shoot or cast or teach. Teach? What the heck's happening there? Like an arrow being shot to its target or information being directly delivered from teacher to pupil, the yore rains are sent down to soften up the ground, ready for the first round of planting. In fact, God's teaching is also compared to the sending of rain in Deuteronomy 32. May my teaching drop as the rain my speech distill as the dew. 
like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. Now the latter rains in Al-Kosh are much harder rains that would have just caused flooding and devastation if they had come earlier on the dusty dry ground. But these latter spring rains are essential for the agricultural cycle too. The Gezer calendar, an archaeological relic with inscriptions from the time of Solomon, tells us that in January-February time, there was a second round of later planting in ancient Israel's agricultural year called the Lakesh. The word for these harder, later rains, Melkosh, is related to the Lakesh. The latter downpours can more easily penetrate the softer ground and bring forth the second harvest in the spring. Now, I want you to try to imagine how important these rains are. They're living life on a razor's edge. Each family is dependent on what they grow to be able to save that and then salt down the meat and create the preserves of the, of the plants, everything they're going to need to be able to survive through the winter. It's life and it's survival itself, these rains, early and later rains. And each rain that falls, if you've ever worked freelance, if you've ever owned your own business, these rains <laughs> are like a job that you get that's going to be able to pay the bills for the month, but then you've got to get the next job or the next client or the next customer in order to pay the bills for the next month, right? And so it's so different than having a regular salary that you just know is going to pay the bills each month. Everything is dependent. You're dependent on forces that you can't control. And what ultimately can't we control more than the rain, nature, God's actions in our lives. And so each rain is like this freelance job that falls. And when they do, there's this sigh of relief, right? There's this celebration because the rains have come. We are saved. Our, 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 our plants are going to grow. People are going to be able to eat. And the people, of course, prayed for the rains. The major pilgrimage festivals were all geared to the agricultural cycle. So Sukkot in the fall, right now, the festival of booths, was all geared to these early rains and to the olive and the grape harvest, right? And then in the spring, Pesach, Passover, is timed with the latter rains, with the Melkosh, and also with the barley harvest. So these are celebrations that are tied to the cycles of nature because that was their lifeblood. And they prayed and they celebrated and they brought God into the process as they understood it because the timing and the reliability of the rains were absolutely critical and the people were completely dependent on them. But it held them close to a connection with their God in a way that irrigation doesn't. Can you see that? If you're irrigating, you're in control. The water is always there. You just have to work to direct it where you need it to be at any given moment. But when you're waiting for the rain to fall, and when it does, it's cause for celebration and the connection with God. It's a whole different way of living. To live in nature, not above it or outside of it, as irrigated peoples can do, as we can do. I mean, we've taken this to a high art form in our concrete urban spaces where we never really connect with nature or the cycles of nature anymore. We just go to the grocery store. Stuff is there, right? All the time. The people could control and harness rivers, but never the rain. It was always real time. It was always out of the sky. And so here again, Egypt represents the first half of life. 
worldview and mentality. But Canaan, Canaan, represents the second half. And so I ask you, who's more free? The Hebrews as they were in Egypt or the Hebrews as they were in Canaan? Well, certainly they were more free in Canaan. Yet they paid for that freedom with the uncertainty of their lives. But as they grew more and more to trust God, the uncertainty was replaced by conviction. This is what the second half of life feels like. We move out of the comfort zone. We move out of our ability to control. And it's frightening and scary at first. But as we persist, if we keep going, then the trust becomes to build. The conviction builds. The uncertainty never leaves. We still can't control the reins. But our trust increases, and it feels completely different. Who's more free, the businessman or the fisherman? Right? Who's more secure and at peace? I'll tell you what, the most insecure and fearful person on the planet is a first half of lifer in a second half of life environment. <laughs> what are you going to do? You know, put an Egypt and Canaan, probably going to freak out. Where's the river? You know, what do I do? You got wait for the rains? Are you kidding me? Think about the times that you have been most ill at ease when you're really losing it, when you're so worried you can barely see straight. It's because of the things that you can't control. This is it. So who's more at peace? The only one who is ever at peace is someone who has moved into the second half of life to realize that security, serenity, does not come from our circumstances. It comes from a completely different source. It comes from within and then we can carry it with us wherever we go. We have to be transitioned to the second half to be able to live moment by moment. And so all of this is about vanquishing the ego. Vanquishing the ego as boss, vanquishing the ego as our identity, who we think we are, vanquishing the ego as the lens through which we see all of life all of meaning and purpose, through that lens of accomplishment, of carving things out, acquiring things, owning them, making their ours. That is what needs to be let go of. Now, how do we do this? Well, of course, the ego would like to take the credit for that, right? <laughs> because that's what the ego does. I did it. You know, I was able to put all this stuff down, let go and let God. All right. How are you exactly doing that now? You know? The ego would like to take credit, but the ego is somehow vanquishing the ego. How does that work for you? How has that been working out for you, right? You know, it's not likely going to happen. We're always going to need outside help if we are going to really do this. If you read any of the lives of the mystics, the mystics from the time of Jesus through to the Middle Ages and so on and so forth, people like Francis of Assisi, people like Meister Eckhart, Julian of Norwich, Teresa of Avila, over and over and over again, you will find that their mystical journeys, their true mystical journey began out of an illness. It began out of a loss. Julia of Norwich began with the Black Plague and watching two-thirds of her village die and have to be carted off to be burned in piles those kinds of, of experiences and events vanquished the ego, tore it down. Persecution, imprisonment, in other words, some sort of suffering 
Great suffering and great loss can take us there, as well as great love. In other words, we have to be put into these limit situations, situations that limit our ability to control, situations that take us to the edge of our ability to even see ourselves as an identity that can somehow make all this work. When we're at the edge of the precipice, then things can actually start to change because they expose the ego's limitations. Old age is going to do that. Impending death will do that. All of these things. Now, what we can do is either consciously or unconsciously create some circumstances that will help us. How many of you have sabotaged a job that you know you should have left a long time ago, but you're just too afraid to actually pull the trigger? But you'll do things that eventually are going to get you fired. You know, I think I did that with every job in my 20s. That's why I never had a going away party. But we do that. We sabotage relationships. We sabotage things because somewhere deep down we know that there is more here that needs to happen. Now we can also consciously do this by putting in place contemplative practice, putting in place the walking of Jesus' way as we are coming to understand it. We can do it positively, consciously. We can do it negatively. We can do it unconsciously. But if we create these situations for ourselves, then the situations are the outside force that creates the pressure and creates the motivation and the pain and everything that we need to be able to actually walk down this road because the ego won't vanquish itself. Nobody gives up power voluntarily. Until the power that we think we have is shown to be an illusion, well, we can give up the illusion, but not the power. And so we have to be shown these things. And so this is how it works. You coming here, you being a part of this community, you saying that you want this understanding and and this experience of contemplative practice is you putting circumstances in your life that can start you down this road engaging in contemplative meditation or mindfulness, the four S's, all these things, and experiencing, beginning to experience the limits of your egoic consciousness, and then finding something more beyond that, this connection to God's presence as a pure thing with no loss in translation. We've been going through Richard Rohr and the... uh, and the Falling Upward book, which is about the same transition from first to second half. And I wanted to read you just a, a couple pages because I'm hoping that this can really lock in what it is we're talking about. And obviously, everything that we talk about is only showing us the door. We still have to walk through the door, but we aren't going to walk through the door until we know where it is, and we know what color it is, and we know what shape it is, and we know how much we can move through it, right? So this is identifying the door for ourselves. So he's talking about the Odyssey, uh, Homer's epic poem, and he uses that through the book as a a metaphor for what he's talking about moving from first to second half of life. So he writes this. In Homer's tale, The Odyssey, written around 700 BC, we follow the awesome and adventurous journey of the hero Odysseus as he journeys home from the Trojan War. Rowing his boat past seductive sirens with detours because of the one-eyed cyclops and the lotus eaters, or through the straits of Scylla and Charybdis, through the consolations and confusions of both Circe and Calypso, Odysseus tries to get back home. 
through trial, guile, error, and ecstasy, chased by gods and monsters, Odysseus finally returns home to his island, Ithaca, to reunion with his beloved wife, Penelope, his dear old father, Laertes, his longing son, Telemachus, and even his dying dog, Argos. Great and good stuff. Accustomed as we are to our normal storyline, we rightly expect a happily ever after ending to Odysseus's tale. And for the most readers, that is all, in fact, they need, want, or remember from the story at all. Odysseus did return, reclaim his home, and reunite, reunite with his wife and son and father. But there is more. In the final two chapters, after what seems like a glorious and appropriate ending, Homer announces and calls Odysseus to a new and second journey that is barely talked about. Yet somehow Homer deemed it absolutely necessary to his character's life. Instead of settling into quiet later years, Odysseus knows that he must heed the prophecy he has already received, but half forgotten from the blind seer Tiresias, who he meets in Hades, in hell, right? At the deepest descent of his life. And Tiresias tells him that he must leave home once again. It is his fate, required by the gods. This new journey has no detailed description, only a few telling images. And here's a passage from the Odyssey itself. Then also came the ghost of Theban Tiresias with his golden scepter in hand. When you get home, you will take your revenge on these suitors of your wife, and after you have killed them by force or fraud in your own house, you must take a well-made oar and carry it on and on till you come to a country where the people have never heard of the sea and do not even mix salt with their food, nor do they know anything about ships and oars that are as the wings of ships. I will give you this certain token which cannot escape your notice. A wayfarer will meet you and will say that your oar must be a winnowing shovel that you have got upon your shoulder. On hearing this, you must fix the oar in the ground and sacrifice a ram, a bull, and a boar to Neptune. Then go home and offer hecatombs, 100 cattle, to the gods in heaven, one after the other. As for yourself, death shall come to you from the sea, and your life shall ebb away very gently when you are full of years and peace of mind, and your people shall bless you. All that I have said will come true. Tiresias' prophecy, which Odysseus half heard earlier in the story, seems to be an omen of what will happen to all of us. Here is my summary of the key points for our purposes, which I hope you will find very telling. One, Odysseus receives this prophecy at the point in his story when he is traveling through Hades, the kingdom of the dead, and thus at the bottom, as it were. It is often when the ego is most deconstructed that we can hear things anew and begin some honest reconstruction, even if it is only half-hearted and half-heard. Two, Tiresias is holding a golden scepter when he gives Odysseus the message. I would interpret that as a symbol of the message coming from a divine source, an authority from without and beyond, unsolicited or unsought, and maybe even unwanted by Odysseus himself. Often it takes outer authority to send us on the path toward our own inner authority. 
3. After all his attempts to return there, Odysseus is fated again to leave Ithaca, which is an island, and go to the mainland for a further journey. He is reuniting his small island part with the big picture, as it were. For me, this is what makes something inherently religious. Whatever reconnects us, religio, to our parts, to the whole, is an experience of God, whether we call it that or not. He is also reconnecting his outer journey to the island or his interior world, which is much of the task of the second half of life. What brilliant metaphors. Four, he is to carry the oar, which was his delivery system, as one who journeyed by ship in his first life. But a wayfarer he meets far from the ocean will see it instead as a winnowing shovel, a tool for separating grain from chaff. When he meets this wayfarer, this is a sign that he has reached the end of his further journey, and he is to plant the oar in the ground at that spot and leave it there, much as young men bury their childhood toys at male initiation rites today. And only then can he finally return home. The first world of occupation and productivity must now find its full purpose. Then he is to sacrifice to the god Neptune, who has been on his trail throughout the first journey, the language of offering sacrifice is rather universal in ancient myths. It must have been recognized that to go forward, there is always something that has to be let go of, moved beyond, given up, or forgiven to enter the larger picture of the gods. And lastly, he used to sacrifice three specific things, a wild bull, a breeding boar, and a battering ram. I doubt whether we could come up with three more graphic images of untrained or immature male energy. Women will want to find their own counterparts here. You cannot walk the second journey with first journey tools. You need a whole new toolkit. Now the story couldn't end until the hero was completed by the journey until the ego was vanquished, until he let go of his illusions of power and was able to enter into this final stage of his life. For those of you who are Lord of the Rings fan, there's this same anticlimactic coda at the end of that story as well with Frodo, right? After he's done everything and the Mount Doom experience, he comes home, but he has this strange existence at home. He can't fit back in. He doesn't belong in the Shire anymore until he is finally taken by the ship out to Avalon or wherever he's going to be with the gods, right? It's that understanding that the story as it ends as we believe it to is not the end of the story. There's always something more. And that something more is this second half of life that is so difficult for us to grasp. It's a radical laying down. It's a burying. It's a relinquishing of the illusion of personal power, of the ego. And Jesus talks about this as well. Take a look at Mark 10, starting at verse 17. This is a, a, a passage that I use over and over again, but it seems like every time I do, there's another facet to it. There's another way to look at this. This is the story of the rich young man. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do? What shall I do so that I may inherit eternal life? But Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And Jesus said to him, and he said to Jesus, Teacher, 
I have kept all these things from my youth. And looking at him, Jesus knows that he's sincere. He knows that it's true. And Jesus showed love to him and said, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But the man was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus looking around said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. This goes against all their cultural understanding, right? But Jesus responded again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it's impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Okay, this rich young man, obviously, is a first half of life young man, right? He's all about control. He's all about following the law. He's all about owning and property. What does he ask Jesus? What must I do? He's still about doing. He's still about accomplishing. You know, he's been following the law. He's been building this. Everything is about the control and about what he can do egoically. And Jesus hits him right off the bat. Why do you call me good? Because what's he doing? He's looking for another set of rules to follow. He's, another, he's looking for Jesus to give him another task to perform that he can do, like a mathematical equation, and get the eternal life that he's looking for. And Jesus isn't going there. You know he's not going there. Why do you call me good? There's only one that's good. When you connect with the Father, with nothing in between, then you will know what eternal life is all about. But until then... You're just the hamster on the wheel. Now, I doubt Jesus would have used that metaphor, but, you know, go with it for a second here. (laughs) He's looking for further control. Jesus is the consummate second half of life man. He's about relinquishing. Sell everything that you have. He's coaxing him to do the same because it's impossible for the ego to do this alone. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a person to let go. And we're not just talking about physical wealth or financial wealth here. We're talking about whatever it is that you rely on in your mind that makes you wealthy. If it works for you, if it's part of your survival, if it allows you to build and acquire, that's your wealth. How can you vanquish that when it's all that you know that gets you where you want to go? It's only when the ego is submerged that we can finally start to rely on a power that's greater than ourselves, on our God, on our community around us. Apparently, the young man hasn't suffered enough. The pain level hasn't got to the place where his ego is limited or exposed enough to be able to see that something else is necessary. He hasn't reached that limit situation, that crisis that will impel him to move forward. And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 44, another familiar passage. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is not the way we think. If I found the treasure... It's now mine. I'm going to hold on to it. If I found the pearl, I put it in my pocket and I get the heck out of there, right? Why do I put it back in place and then sell everything? 
See, we want to approach these things from a first half of life mentality because that's all we've really got to work with. But Jesus is trying to tell us there's something so completely different. When we get that first glimpse of kingdom, when we get that first inkling that there's another there out there that's so radically different, it's exhilarating for us. And we want to acquire it with our first half of life tools. But it can't be acquired directly. It doesn't work that way. Kingdom is a second half of life experience. It is the quality of life that we experience, that we realize that we live when we have stepped away from the ego and moved into a second half of life mentality. We must sell everything in order to go there. Vanquish this ego before the kingdom can be ours, really before the kingdom becomes ourselves. We become kingdom, literally. We don't own it. We don't possess it. We only enter it in the sense that we become it from the inside out. Now, when I say we need to vanquish the ego, of course, I'm not talking about destroy it. It's a both-and situation here, too. But it's merely to see it as it is, a tool of our self-awareness, not who we are, not our identity, not the totality. It's even the same with the prodigal son and his elder brother. Think about that, right? The elder brother is the consummate first half of life son. Everything is about following the rules his father has set out, building the property. And he's incensed when his brother, who started out first half of life, but comes back broken in the good way of finally willing to submit and just be his father's hired hand. He comes back second half of life, and here you have this loggerhead between the first and the second half. And the first half will not go in and celebrate or join the party because he is stuck. He cannot see the truth of his father, consummate second half, and now his brother who returns home, second half. Jesus hammers this over and over and over again, always trying to get us to understand what is really going on here. Is there a description of this journey that I'm talking about in the Bible that takes us from the first half of life and through to the second half of life and gives us a sense of all that is going on in us that we experience as we move through? And the answer, of course, is yes, there is. But if we're going to see this, we're going to have to deal with our fixation on the literal reading of Scripture. Because if you think about it, insisting on our literal reading of Scripture is a first half of life attitude. It's trying to create control over the Scripture if we can understand it just right and we can control it. And ultimately, we can control God. We can control God's action towards us. And so we need to break ourselves of that and let the scripture speak for itself. Who is more free? He who has a literal view under glass, put through with a pin all the way down to the last word, or he who allows the scriptures to freely speak different things at different times, different things to different people, that somehow all of this is the fullness of what the scripture offers. Put this one on your fridge. Only those who are truly free can risk allowing freedom for others. It's the only way it works. When you are free enough to allow your partner to be free, that's a relationship that can last. But you have to be free enough 
to allow that freedom in the other. Otherwise, it's way too frightening. Until trust has set in, until we can allow that freedom. And this applies to God as well. Can we allow God to simply be God? Mysterious, beyond our kin, beyond what we can possibly imagine? Or is that way too frightening for us? Who's more free? The one who allows paradox in his or her life, the one who can make friends with mystery and uncertainty is the one who is truly free. And this is the truth that Jesus is talking about when he says this truth will make you free. To be able to allow the scripture to speak will show us an immense journey of the soul as it really appears. In Genesis, we see the incarnation of each one of us into this world, in God's image. But then we watch that image become hidden by the covering of ego when we eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our self-awareness obliterates what we knew before. And then from Genesis, we move to Job for the transformation through the suffering that allows us to finally vanquish the ego and finally submit to a mysterious God who speaks from the whirlwind and tells us, Nothing we want to know, but reestablishes the nature of the relationship. And for them, from there to Ecclesiastes, for the consummation of the realization of the meaninglessness of ego and everything that we can accomplish in the face of what God is bringing us. It's a journey of the child who grows into the businessman and then finally becomes a fisherman at the end of his or her life again. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I never leave you with a cliffhanger, but I'm going to do it now because this is, we're, we're done today. We're past done. This is an epic journey that we can see in these three books, in these three passages, and I want to take some time with it so that we can really start to understand what this first to second half life looks like and what the scriptures are telling us about the nature of the journey. So be here next week. <laughs> Meantime, let's pray. Father, Thank you. All we can do is be grateful for everything that you shower us with and everything that you show us. But this stuff is, of course, not only hard for us, but impossible for us on our own. Trying to put down the very things that make us who we think we are is not possible. So we need you, Lord. With you, all things are possible. We need to trust you more. We need to have more of a sense of your allness so that we can start to let go piece by piece of the things that are blocking us from you and from this second half of life experience that will ultimately connect us to everything and everyone around us. So, Father, again, keep encouraging us. We know that you have infinite patience. Keep showering that on us as well. As we stumble two steps forward, one step back, but keep us on the path in the direction that will lead us home to you. And thank you, Lord. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.